1: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, this is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis on the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's podcast it's Wednesday and that means it's your questions answered. Well, boys, we're going to go straight in with a question from at Stephen Groom. He said, why would United seriously consider Rio Ferdinand when he has no experience of the role? This is obviously uh, a question relating to the news that Rio Ferdinand has been talked to with regards to the sporting director role at Manchester United. Stephen continues, isn't it incredible when they already have a relatively inexperienced manager at the top level? What are your thoughts? Duncan...
0: Yeah, I think Stephen um, hits the nail on the head there. Um, it is incredible. Uh, I don't, I don't see why Manchester United should even be talking to uh, an individual who has no experience um, as a director of football. I think no experience beyond being a player in football. Um, I may be wrong in that, but I, I don't think he's had any. Um, a coaching role or um, executive role before, um, and I think it's simply a well. I think for Manchester United fans I have to hope it's simply a PR move to be seen to uh, be talking to former players um, from the perspective that that might be popular. I think it's one that's backfiring for them. I think that the I, I see a, a lot of reaction from Manchester United fans saying um, what Stephen is saying. How could they think about appointing uh, Rio Ferdinand for that role? And I think the reasons he gives are um, are, are correct as well. Um, he would be working with a, a an inexperienced manager in Premier League and Champions League terms. Not inexperienced in terms of the length of his career, but certainly in terms of uh, uh, organising and re, completely reorganising a club of Manchester United stature. Um, And most importantly, he doesn't have the experience of operating as a director of football, which is a a very specific and important skill and one that can make a vast difference um, at every level of a club, Um, obviously in terms of recruitment. And I think that is the hardest part of the director of football's job is not just the identification of talent, but... The actual securing of talent, understanding how the market works, understanding how agents work, um, understanding the politics of football, having uh, the degree of contacts um, to give yourself access to the, the largest number of players and being able to negotiate deals that, uh, in a way that are advantageous to your club, but also the the internal organisation of, of the club, which is something that... We saw Jose Mourinho, after he was sacked by Manchester United, very much highlighting uh, the issue of club structure as a problem he'd experienced at United um, and kind of using that as an excuse, I think you could, you could say, excuse or an explanation of why uh, he'd failed at Manchester United. And, and his point was that he was expected to be the authority figure, uh, to be the face of the club. Um, to be the public spokesman for the club, to deal with problem players by himself that the directorate were not intervening to help him by making public statements or going to a player and saying, you have to toe the line here because he's the manager, he's in charge of tactics. The obvious, you know, that Paul Pogba was never mentioned by Mourinho in these, um, these interviews he gave on, on the matter, but Paul Pogba was the key um, individual in question. All of those elements, I think, are also extremely important for a sports director to provide that bridge between uh, the club ownership, the players, and a a kind of third person who can mediate between manager and player when required. And and these are difficult skills um, which are learned over time um, and have to be applied carefully. And again, I don't see that bringing a player with no experience of the role in is um, is a clever move unless you get very lucky in the player you're appointing. And In Rio Ferdinand's specific case, he just doesn't come across as um, the kind of person who would have that degree of, let's say, emotional intelligence and strategic planning. I mean, I, I, there's a... a, a you know, an infamous video now of of uh, of Rio Fernand uh, talking about Solskjaer after the Paris Saint-Germain victory and um, how everything was basically saying how everything was sorted at Manchester United and, and Ollie's at the wheel and, and he'll fix it for him, which, is, which has turned into a great embarrassment for him because of the results since then. But I think that's quite indicative of how Ferdinand is as an individual and why... Um, Externally, it would seem as a very stupid um, appointment for Manchester United to even be considering, never mind um, thinking about properly putting in place.
2: So I deal with um, sporting stroke technical directors at football clubs on an almost daily basis in my work. And I would say that the best ones fans will never have heard of. And the reason for that is they operate below the level of... um, public perception and image. They do not seek to have an image or a public persona um, in the way that obviously Rio Ferdinand has developed that uh, both in his football career and after his football career as a pundit. Um, One of the reasons for that is because they are intelligent, articulate and very good administrators as well. Now, to be a sporting director at a football club uh, it's not just about identifying talent or recruiting talent. It's about, first of all, knowing what um, to do with terms of football contracts, the knowledge, in-depth knowledge of the market in terms of transfer fees and the working um, of the transfer business, which obviously, as Duncan pointed out, includes um, many facets, agents being one of the most important, but also dealing with uh, the football club whom you're trying to buy the player from, uh, as well as the directors or indeed your opposite number sporting director at that club. It's um, it's a very diplomatic role, and it has to be. It's also a role which requires um, in-depth knowledge, I think, of coaching and how teams are put together. So, for instance, if you are recruiting a player for a particular position at your club, then what you need to do is be able to liaise with your coaching staff and probably, I think, as well with some of your senior players. And you will need to know, therefore, how that player is going to fit into your club, how his personality, if it will fit into your club and how he will fit in in terms of the formation and philosophy of football that your club plays. So it's not just a case of turning up in a nice suit, glad handing people saying, uh, you know, I'm Real Ferdinand, I'm a world recognised footballer and uh, you come from Manchester United because we're Man United and I'm Real Ferdinand. So that's why you're going to be, you know, really impressed by us. <laughs> That's not how it works. That's not how it works at all. Um, I suspect, and I have heard, and I'm not saying I can confirm this, that Rio Ferdinand applied for this role or certainly made a phone call to say they'd be interested in it. And I think out of, let's say, just you know, consideration or um, respect for the fact that he is uh, you know, a major figure in Manchester United's recent history, that a meeting was held and a conversation was held But I very, very much doubt that they are seriously considering appointing him as as sporting director. Um, However, I suppose what we've got to look at is they have appointed Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as their manager. So, um, you know, the the, the prospect that uh, we just need to appoint old players and everything's going to be fine is not an unrealistic one in terms of the world of Ed Woodward and Manchester United right now. But... um, I think our um, listener's question and his point about um, Ferdinand's inexperience and why would you add that to the relative inexperience at this level of of, uh, the manager would be potentially catastrophic for Manchester United.
1: Duncan, just a quick point on this. Is networks not the most important factor behind a football director? The ability to have a long, long list of contacts, knowing lots and lots of agents and the ability to facilitate moves where other people might not see them. How on earth could Rio Ferdinand have that ability? Look, he could have that
0: ability. It's one of the important factors. He could have that ability from from his um, time in football um, and his his contacts through his own agents. Um, but he's certainly not been operating as a um, as a as a source sourcer of talent um, in the recruitment context before, or in a coaching role. And I think Ian makes a very good point that. Um, I think the best technical directors do have a, a very good um, working knowledge of coaching and what, what's required of a football team. And you know, having had in-depth conversations with some of the top sports directors in the world, it, there is a commonality where they, you, you ask about recruitment and they'll say, well, the, the thing is you've got, to dis, you've got to recruit differently depending on the club, um, the club's strategy, and what the manager wants. Um, so you have to think of it in that context rather than just picking the best 11 or 25 players that you, you can get. Um, it's putting pieces into a puzzle, and the puzzle's defined by various other things about the club. Um, I think we just refer back here to, to something we talked about in the Transfer Window podcast several weeks ago, which is that Manchester United, is, as as we said, have been offered. Um, uh, interviews uh, and offered the the opportunity to recruit some of the top sports directors in the world and they have turned down the opportunity to speak to them and the implication of that is that they do not want a top sporting director they want actually their strategy here is to keep transfers under the control of uh, Ed Woodward and to put a director of football in who becomes a um, a PR move and a face for the club. And, I mean, Ian said that the best sports directors are usually quiet. I think that's correct. You don't hear from most of them. I, I'm a great example of Big Bagiristan, who you, I, I struggle to remember him ever being quoted um, uh, and doing any interviews since he became the technical director, sports director at Manchester City. I might be wrong. He might have done one at one point, but... Um, He's probably done the best job in the Premier League, um, and he would you never say he's a sp-
1: cheeky chappy Duncan?
0: <laughs> quack, quack. <laughs> I'll just um, have my own patter because no one else will. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can have sporting directors who who can be the who are the face of the club, and I think that usually happens when you, the chief executive doesn't want to to speak, and they use the the sporting director as a front, um, and to do those interventions when they're required. And I I think that is what Manchester United are looking for here. It's it's for a front person uh, as opposed to a proper decision maker. And if they're looking for a front person, then the idea of employing a famous and successful uh, former uh, club pro makes more sense from their perspective. And and certainly in discussions I've had uh, with people who've been talking to Manchester United, sports directors, that was one of the the um, the, the, the themes of the, the conversation, was they uh, believe that what Manchester United want to appoint is someone who has a history at Manchester United and will be uh, more for presentational purposes than he will be for um, executive purposes.
2: But on that basis then, Duncan, I think it would be dangerous for United to consider Ferdinand. Not because he's intelligent, you know, he's intelligence articulate, and he's shown that in his punditry, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but... He's yeah. also very opinionated. So if you're going to appoint someone to effectively be the spokesperson or figurehead of the club because no one else wants that job, which obviously we've seen since Woodward or the Glazers never appear in you know media or print or anything else, then <clears throat> one slip from your sports director, if he's used to giving his opinion and has strong opinions, could be very damaging to the club, which is... If, therefore, the criteria is someone who knows the club, someone who can represent the club um, in as a public face, obviously someone like Edwin van, van der Sar would be a much better uh, candidate than Ferdinand on the basis that he's currently does, has done that job uh, as sporting director. I think um, his character and personality is much more suited to the diplomacy required of a sporting director. And, and by the way, he actually knows a player as well. He can, he probably would and has a good, good contact network. And his experience at Ajax, um, I think, would be uh, very, very helpful to Manchester United in terms of um, recruitment and um, academy strategies. So, as I said, I, I think Ferdinand's a little bit of a kind of red herring, excuse the pun, in terms of Devils. Um, but uh, someone like van der Sarre would be a much better candidate.
0: You know, our friend, a friend, Johnny Northcroft, interviewed Edwin van der Saar before the Juventus Champions League uh, tie and asked him specifically about that. Um, and he basically said he would be interested in coming back to Manchester United at some stage, but uh, not at present. Um, he had more work to do at Ajax, so um, I think that's something Manchester United could look at down the line. I think you're right; he is a very strong candidate for the role, but I don't think is available
1: for them at present. OK, we're going to move on now to a question from Mandor 79 He says, I would like to ask Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry if they think it would be a failure if Liverpool don't win a trophy this season considering the year that they've had. Ian, what do you make of this? Um, I do think it's a
2: very good question. Um and <sighs> We've spoken about Pochettino in the past, haven't we? About his career and how everyone says he's the best coach and he is, you know, the God God's gift, if you like, to modern management. But yet he's never won a trophy. And does that? How does that leave him in terms of um, the context of you know his judging his success with Liverpool this season? I think we have there is a caveat, a major, major caveat here, and that caveat is Manchester City um, in fourteen. Premier League seasons, you, um, Liverpool would have already won the Premier League with two games to go with the points total they currently have. Um, that tells you how incredible a season it's been for both Liverpool and for Manchester City. Uh, Manchester, Liverpool have played some wonderful, wonderful football as well. And, and personally, um, I don't have any um, pre-election to either club, City or Liverpool, but I think it would be a shame... For Liverpool to end this season with nothing, because I think the quality of their play uh, and the excitement they've brought um, to many, many games, um, as well as the campaign as a whole, uh, should be or deserves to be rewarded with something tangible, not just a second place, like the Champions League final last year, or second place in the Premier League. Although that is how it's looking at the moment with regards to the way cities um, are relentless in their pursuit of points. Um, Klopp, I think as a manager, as a Liverpool manager, you've got to again put some perspective into the people who've occupied that post recently. No championship in 29 years. um, Very little success in terms of cups, etc, etc. So I guess the question is, if Liverpool don't win anything this season, is Jürgen Klopp going to be considered a failure, not just the season for Liverpool um, because he's the man in charge of picking the teams and tactics and et cetera, et cetera. I would have to say that would be harsh and and a a no. Um, And with the fact that they've improved their recruitment that we've spoken about in the past on the podcast um, so um, dramatically in the past two seasons, I think Liverpool are on the verge of, you know, being champions of England or champions of Europe. And that may well still be the case this season. Um, So I think failure would be a harsh word to use uh, in terms of what they've already done this season and what they might yet do. But of course, we need to revisit it uh, in two weeks' time uh, or indeed four weeks' time after the Champions League final should they obviously um, progress against Barcelona in the semi-finals. Uh, And and we can talk about it then. As I said, at this moment in time, I'd say I think it'd be harsh to say it'd be a failure if they won nothing.
0: Well, as things stand, they're in position... Um, where they can win the Premier League against one of the strongest Premier League champions ever um, and the Champions League in the same season. If they do that, that will be one of the most impressive seasons from an English club uh, for a long, long period of time. So they've got themselves in position to do that. They have the opportunity to do it um, and they will deserve a huge amount of plaudits for it. Um, if they manage to achieve it if they don't then you have to say again they've got themselves in position to get so close to winning the champions league and the premier league so they've got a very strong team uh, they've certainly had a, a the rub of the green um in terms of the champions league uh, group stage um very much so in the premier league in terms of points given to them by uh opposition uh, goalkeeper errors bizarre errors and Um, I think they've had the best of the refereeing decisions for sure over the course of the season. So
2: So It's been a lucky season, Duncan, then?
0: It's not been a... They've been been relatively fortunate compared to their direct rival for the title, for sure. Um, Who was it who said,
2: I'd rather be a lucky manager than a good manager?
0: Well, I think all managers should be saying I'd rather be a winning manager than a second-place manager. And that's that's the big problem for Jurgen Klopp. Um, and I'll I'll refer you back to Jurgen Klopp's first press conference as Liverpool manager 2015 uh, where he said um, if we sit here in four years time I think we'll have won one title and that was taken as I think we'll have won one Premier League title which he then rode back on and said actually when I used the word title I was only talking about a cup not the Premier League title and he's pretty close now to even missing that, which I think, let's do the analysis this way. If Jurgen Klopp's been at Liverpool for years, has had the squad um, constructed for him, I think, and I, I think that's probably the right way to describe it since we've been talking about sporting directors, and the sporting director at the club is one that Klopp has, has developed a lot of trust in. Um, and allowed and followed his guidance on on players and the sporting director has worked specifically to recruit players who fit Klopp's way of playing. So they're a great example of a a, a coach and sporting director partnership that um, had never worked together before uh, and have come together um, to work extremely well because the sporting director is tailoring recruitment um, for the specific and, and it is quite a a characteristic way of playing that Klopp has. So if he goes goes for four years at the club with the squad built for him that's been built for him and Liverpool are now very big spenders in terms of transfer fees and very big spenders in terms of wages and he hasn't even delivered one cup then you have to say that's a failure. And you would have to say that going into next season he's going to be under a significant amount of pressure because it will have been four campaigns with nothing um and that element of having got so close um to the two biggest trophies um and still have got nothing and and there's definitely a decision in there by Jurgen Klopp this season which was dump the League Cup dump the FA Cup as quickly as possible to focus energy on Premier League and Champions League Um, and if he doesn't come up with either of them, I think from an external point of view, I don't think that I don't think you'll get this from the Liverpool fans, but I think from an external point of view, questions will be asked whether that was a good strategic decision to make. But it all comes down to results. It all comes down to whether they can deliver against Barcelona and whoever they play in the Champions League final if they get there, um, and whether, or whether they can secure that Premier League title.
2: This kind of season is not without precedent in, in European football. Um, those of you who remember the brilliant Bayer Leverkusen side, who came to be known as Neverkusen because they were runners-up in everything um, to Bayern Munich domestically, having gone so close to winning the Bundesliga and the German Cup and then lost to Real Madrid um, famously in the Hamden uh, Champions League final of 2002. Um, So sometimes you just, you know, as much as you get the rub of the green that Duncan has kind of um, articulated. Um, sometimes it just doesn't work out for you. Uh, I, no matter how great a season you've had, you end up with nothing. And um, I th- I'd be quite sad if that was the case with Liverpool this season. Because I said I, I greatly admire the way they've played. Or more, more importantly, the brilliant Dundee United team of
0: 1987 that uh, lost the UEFA Cup final, lost unjustly in the Scottish Cup final, and um, played every game apart from one possible. Um, I think also. Um, some bad refereeing in the Scottish League Cup final, uh, League Cup semi-final prevented them from getting there. So they were a, a team that were exceptional and uh, and ended up with nothing.
1: There's no never one. Quite said. like a tangerine chip. Yeah, I was gonna say, never <laughs> let it be said, Duncan isn't prepared to hold a 30-year grudge. Right, we're gonna move on to at Benny Walsh five, who is targeting his guns towards journalism. He's asked. Are journalists at pressers afraid of the clubs and a nice blonde lady going all Jim Acosta on their asses if they ask the big questions that we, the fans, want answered?
2: Um, Again, it requires context. I do understand the frustration of football fans um, when it comes to uh, press conferences, especially the pre-match, post-match ones, which clearly are the sort of, you know, Consistent food and drink, if you like, of of media coverage. Um, very rarely do you get the chance to do sit down one on one interviews with a manager, a player in, which would normally glean um, much more interesting answers to much more interesting questions. So, um, the context is you have the opportunity to add maybe ask one or two questions at a press conference of the person sitting in front of you. Um, a follow up question is normally um sort of not uh, considered to be uh, good manners. Uh, so much like Jim Acosta, um, as our um, listener mentioned, um, he was shut down after asking one hard question and was trying to follow up on that. The um, the reality is that most football clubs, especially Premier League clubs and especially the, the elite Premier League clubs, um, have a kind of hold, if you like, over... The media in terms of they have the, um, the wherewithal to make life difficult for them if they ask hard questions or pursue an agenda which they believe um, is um, worthwhile, objective and relevant. Um, but at the same time, journalism for me in all my time working in it has always been about um, representing uh, what people want to know and the information that people want to hear. Um, and need to be told. Um, very famously, I was asked by my sports editor um, when I worked for The Sun, um, when Mourinho was sacked, if I wanted to go ahead and write a back-page story which implicated John Terry as the main source of the reason Mourinho was sacked because he said to me, you realise that your relationship with Terry could be over because at the time we had a good relationship. And I said, that's not my job to be John Terry's friend. My job was to do my job and that's to report the facts, which I did. And true enough, John Terry didn't speak to me for two years after that. In fact, we almost got into a fight on the tarmac at Valencia Airport over
1: that particular story.
2: Uh, i money would have be on
1: JT there, buddy.
2: Uh, you've never seen me in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take the horse, the clock horse. You take the ducks. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I, look. That's my point being is is into, it's kind of up to the journalists themselves. If they want to be brave, they can be. Um, I've been in many situations in my career where I've been banned or I've been shot down, or I've been told you know, I'm not welcome there anymore because I've done these things. And I'm not saying that that's the right or the wrong way to do it. That was just my choice. Um, but it's true that elite clubs, especially the powerful ones, um, do try to control the media as much as they can. And in doing so, they, I wouldn't say they make the media scared to ask questions which need to be answered, but they certainly make it more difficult for that um, to happen and for that platform to be Um, introduced if you like because of the fact that uh, issues which are either controversial or um, complex it needs more than one question to get an answer so therefore you get sound bites instead and I'll give you a very good example Um, the pre much press conference which um, Mauricio Pochettino gave just on uh, Monday of this week ahead of the game with Ajax he quoted a character in Toy Story saying he wanted to go to Infinity and Beyond and that soundbite was what made the back pages of every newspaper. And it's not very interesting. And I'm, when a, a club is playing its first Champions League semi-final, I don't want to hear a quote from Toy Story. I want to hear Murcio Pochettino tell me his plans for how he's going to overcome Ajax, who are a very, very good team, and in the end defeated Tottenham 1-0 on their own uh, turf. And so, you know, I'm sorry, but Buzz Lightyear just doesn't do it for me.
0: Well, Buzz Buzz Pochettino can save save Tottenham in the second leg. We know we know he can go to infinity and beyond in, in the Amsterdam arena. Um, I think Ian's right. It's about control. The, the issue here is about control. It's in clubs. It's clearly in clubs' interest to control uh, the national and local press, who um, produce the majority of copy um, through which the opinions. Um, and statements of the club are, are filtered uh, to the fans. It's in their interest if they can um, get positive messages out. I mean, we, we saw an example of that uh, last week when um, Laguna Solskjaer quite cleverly um, and uh, completely uh, unprovoked in his press conference raised the issue of uh, Manchester City's tactical fouling ahead of the Manchester derby for obvious reasons, because he wanted to um, uh, have the media focused on it and the referee focused on it going into the game and, and hope to try and nullify or at least um, uh, minimise the effect of that tactic on on his team. Uh, what happened? Um, Manchester City then sent statistics round um, the, uh, the Manchester press pack um, to the effect that Manchester City had the lowest number of fouls committed in the Premier League this season in Manchester United had the highest number of fouls committed and a lot of the papers uh, ran those statistics um, saying uh, by the way Solskjaer you're wrong um, that missed the point obviously because what Solskjaer was talking about specific fouls in specific areas um, if you're going to talk about frequency of fouling then you need to take it um, uh, in terms of how, how what time a team has off the ball if you do that analysis you find that Solskjaer is right that Manchester City do foul more often than others but from the point of controlling the press Manchester City did a good job there they got their message across um, and uh, and that was probably a favour called in and I think a lot of this works in the sense of if you're covering big clubs um, what the manager says what the club says is always a story. So it's, you can fill a lot of uh, newspaper copy just with press conference content. You don't need to be controversial. You don't always need to ask the hard questions. Um, you know, as Ian says, the the, the Buzz Lightyear um, quote, um, got lots of coverage in the newspapers from the Tottenham press conference rather than something that might have been more interesting. Um, Manchester United, I mean, the the nice blonde lady that our questioner refers to, uh, Karen Shaw, is actually a very nice lady. And they're not, uh, by any means, the most aggressive club uh, in England when it comes to the press. Obviously, they have a reputation where um, Sir Alex Ferguson used to ban journalists who asked their own questions or wrote stories he didn't like. They don't do that anymore. Um, They are also, in my experience, a club that, still allows journalists, if they arrange an interview with a player, um, if a player wants to speak to a journalist, um, they will not stand in the way of that interview, whereas the majority of clubs these days will now actively block um, interviews with journalists they don't like. Um, give a personal example, um, uh, I, covered, I was uh, based in London for a long time, covered Chelsea extensively extensively. Um, developed relationships with several players obviously through um through covering them and interviewing them at one point i was asked to do a uh, a sponsored column for one of the players because he he trusted me as a journalist and it would have been a, quite a lucrative um uh, deal for me um and chelsea basically intervened and said uh, no you won't be doing that column uh, you, we're, there's no way we're going to allow you to have regular access to one of our players, because and you can't expect to have access to our players because you write negative stories about the club, i.e. true stories, but in their their context, negative stories. So that that's an example of a club controlling the press.
1: Okay, we're going to move on to the final question now from at Sammy1679. He's been asking about Zinedine Zidane, and he says, guys, there's a myth in the UK media Um, that seems to have been started that Zinedine Zidane was poor in La Liga during his time as Real Madrid manager. And I thought this is an interesting question, because who better to put it to than the man that once said, Zinedine Zidane, three European cups. Pa, he's not very good. (laughs) <laughs> in the
2: well, you know, sometimes you, you get it right, sometimes you get it right. And um, <laughs> let, Let's look at Zidane, since he took over Real Madrid mid-season this year in the Liga. Has he impressed? No. Did they lose a very, very poor game last weekend? Again, yes, they did. Um, look, Some coaches are, are, are good at knockout tournaments, mm-hmm. they're good in cup competitions. Maybe Zidane's just a cup coach. Maybe that's what he does best. I don't know. He's, his record in the Liga has been poor. Um, quite frankly as it's how Real Madrid however what you will have as of this summer is a transfer kitty probably unprecedented in world football to recruit new players so um, it's fair to say that uh, during this time of three consecutive Champions League um, titles he didn't need nor wanted to recruit heavily so now he's got the opportunity and obviously the need to recruit heavily, um, given uh, Real Madrid's form of the last twelve months uh, and beyond—not uh, infinity—and um, he will—he um, will be judged yep. on next season, Johnny, with regards to um, how they perform in winning. Because now Real Madrid fans are kind of a little, a little bit bored of winning the European Cup. They're like, mm, "Can we just win the league again, please?" Because we really don't like the um, mm. those Catalans up in the. Uh, and North taking titles every single year. So, um, Hazard, possibly Pogba, who knows who, who comes in. But when he spends that money, and then we look at Real Madrid's form next season, yeah, we'll see how good a manager he is in terms of um, his performances in the Liga. But at this, at this moment in time, I think our listeners kind of, he's saying it's a myth. I don't think it's a myth at all. The facts are there. How many titles has he won in the Liga? Yes, he's won Champions League, but not, you know, the, the same success in the Liga. So he needs, he needs to perform. And Florentino Perez, having made the decision to bring him back, which is a risk given that um, almost everyone high up at that club recognised that he was burning out at the end of last season and that he probably would quit. Um, and then obviously they, they went into some kind of cataclysmic freefall of appointing and sacking managers Um, one after the other, before Zidane finally agreed to come back. So, yeah, um, as someone once said, it's it's a big season for Real Madrid next year. Let's see how they do.
0: I think I'm I'm glad Sami's asked this question repeatedly and finally got his answer because I think he does make a good point that it's almost overlooked that um, Zidane won La Liga in his second uh, season at Real Madrid, his first full season. Um, And it It's overlooked, I suppose, because um, he was so successful in the Champions League, winning it every year. Um, I think the basic point, though, about Zidane, um, the question about Zidane of how good a manager he actually is and whether the success he had in the Champions League was based on a fundamental skill of of being able to hold that dressing room together and get them to deliver... um, in the most important competition, is all he has, and what's going to happen? What's going to happen now with Madrid? He's he's managed to leverage his exit in his favour, um, and he's managed to leverage the, the the fallout from his exit to get a degree of control at Real Madrid that's almost unprecedented in in recent history, and certainly far far beyond what he had in his first spell as coach. Um, I'm told that when he was uh, sat with Florentino Perez um, negotiating his return, he uh, demanded that he would have a budget that he personally controlled of 200 million euros this summer, on top of whatever Florentino um, wanted to spend on players himself. Now, certainly what's going to happen here is a different situation to before, because he's now got that transfer budget, Recruitment is going to be very important um, to this squad, which is something that wasn't important to him before. The squad basically stayed as it was. Um, and you're talking about rebuilding in a, in a very uh, fundamental fashion. He's also minus the best player in the world, um, who I think had a far bigger part in those three Champions League victories and that of victory than Zinedine Zidane had. Um, so well, he's got himself in a better position in terms of his power base, it's a harder job now. And I think we find out a lot about whether the, the, those people who have observed Zidane as a coach so far and suggested that he would struggle away from the very specific circumstances in which he succeeded at Real Madrid, whether they're right or not, we'll get a good idea of that in the next season
2: uh, or two. It's, it's also worth pointing out quickly, Johnny, that um Pep Guardiola suffered the same kind of um you know mudslinging um about his time at Barcelona where you know a lot of people decided that well he inherited an amazing team he didn't have to do anything with it um he made very few changes but was imperious in the Liga, and indeed won two Champions Leagues as well um so Zidane's not the first manager uh, of one of the two top clubs in Spain to have you know this kind of myth mythical type um Reputation and being questioned on the basis of, well, what did you really achieve? So, um, look, when it comes to myths, the truth is always halfway probably between the myth and uh, the, the facts. So in this case, I think, I, 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 again, I repeat, and Duncan uh, has said the same, an impressive amount of power in terms of the transfer market, an impressive amount of money um, in terms of his ability to spend, this is when we will see whether is a really good coach or not in next season.
1: It's time for today's donkeys. It's the Graham Sunnis Award for throwing projectiles in anger. Of course, this is a reference to a viral video that's doing the rounds on social media. This sees Graham Sunnis bemoan modern tactical bull as he was analysing last night's Spurs defeat against Ajax. Ian, who are the nominees?
2: It's a pleasure, as always, just to uh, open the golden envelope, as you can hear. Um, First of all, we're going to go a little bit um, kind of retro-historical here, uh, to when Luis Figo, having made his notorious defection from Barcelona to Real Madrid um, under the galactical project of Florentino Perez, turned up for his first Classico, um, and a pig's head was thrown onto the pitch beside him, as he was about to take a corner kick in the camp now. I think that's a very strong contender for this particular award. Um, Equally strong, I think, uh, involves the great Sir Alex Ferguson and, indeed, um, one very young at the time, um, Cesc Fabregas, who, after uh, a very hotly contested Manchester United versus Arsenal match at Old Trafford, um, successfully threw a pizza um, slice, which hit Fergie on the forehead. Um, Now, for any of you who have ever tried to throw... triangle of pizza, you'll know that it's not frisbee-like therefore we should not demean that feat at all. Um, And our third nomination also includes uh, the great Fergie, who of course, uh, infamously in a hair-drying type rant after defeat at Old Trafford, kicked a boot which managed to find uh, the eyebrow of one then most famous and beautiful footballer in the world David Beckham, um, whose PR people then decided that he should drive out of Old Trafford (laughs) with full stitches um, showing uh, Duncan I'll hand it over to you to present the prestigious award
0: Well I suppose I should go to, to Ferguson um, for for the boot in Beckham's head and, and the PR's team use of it to get him out of the club uh, because that is the story that has gone on and got more headlines than any other and has gone on um, down the years and it will never be forgotten um, but Ces Fabregas hitting Ferguson with pizza. What what would you not give to have a video of that um, incident um, <laughs> just to see see uh, Ferguson's face and his reaction and and the uh, response of the teammates. However, I'm going to go for the most bizarre one of all because um, a pig's head on the pitch. I remember I think I just started in journalism. I was working uh, for the Daily Yomiuri Yomi uh, newspaper in Japan. Um, when that happened, and uh, managed to get a picture of the the pig's head on the back page of the uh, of uh, of the paper. Um, I, I wish I could remember what headline we used for that, but the the sheer I'd, love to, I'd
2: love to know what it said in Japanese. Never mind what it was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the sheer the sheer audacity of getting a pig's head into a football stadium and then managing uh, to throw it onto the pitch, which I, I can imagine is not. The easiest thing to do. Pig's heads won't be the lightest objects, and in, in the world to chuck uh, several meters onto a football pitch. That has to be that has to uh, be the the, the the top contender. Although Graham Sunes probably has a shout himself for um, for running into the middle of an opposition pitch in, in Turkey and and uh, planting his team's flag in the centre of it. But um, we'll we'll just we'll just stick to soonest in the studio with Byros and, and keep flags off them um, for the future for the sake of uh, the, uh, the other uh, audience members
2: i, I can't just also add i'm still smarting from fergus mccann throwing a teaspoon at me during an interview um i've, I've still i still have the burn on my hand <laughs> what did you say to fergus to upset him Oh, I think I have to keep that secret for now.
1: (laughs) It's time to slam this particular transfer window shut, but fear not, we're going to be back Friday as usual. To continue the debate, we're all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window account, at Transfer Podcast. Of course, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and more importantly, the guys are at Garbo SJ for Ian and at Duncan Castles for Duncan. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, please give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as that does help us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Friday, thanks for listening.